greetings, KPA families. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, we have a really exciting episode where I get to speak with Dr. Louis Marcos. That's right, uh, Houston Baptist University's distinguished professor of literature, and he uh, was our Paideia conference speaker from this past summer. And we are going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and the way that he understood the medieval world and how that shaped a, a very different way of looking at reality. So that's a, a really cool uh, conversation you're get, going to hear. Um, before we get to that, let me share a few quick announcements. So uh, we're going to have an all-pro dads um, breakfast with our, our dads and students on March the 3rd, on Friday, March the 3rd, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, remember that on March 6th, that fall registration opens up to everybody, even new families. So if you uh, wanna keep your spot at KPA, please uh, get registered before that date. Um, otherwise, you could lose your spot. And then we have uh, Friday, March 10th, is the end of our third term and at the end of that school day you can say spring break begins and that also means we're three-fourths of the way done with our school year so a lot of things are happening um, and be aware of those deadlines and those dates and we're really bringing an end to this school year which is uh, really incredible to think it's already blown by all right let's enough enough announcements let's jump into this conversation with louis marcos Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm very honored to have with us our guest, uh, Dr. Louis Marcos from Houston Baptist University, distinguished professor and scholar of many things, uh, Paideia speaker of KPA among his great uh, resume lines. But uh, it's so great to have you and to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back on, John. It's good to be back. Um. Last time we talked about pagan literature, this time I'd like to talk about something that I think unites us and is a common love, which is uh, C.S. Lewis. And so um, let's start by just uh, me asking, how did you discover C.S. Lewis? Do you remember your introduction to him? It's actually a very interesting story, John, because I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church and I came to know Christ in the church. Later on, God moved me into the evangelical world mm -hmm. when I was in college. Um, but our priest, our Greek priest in New Jersey is where I grew up. Uh, was very much, he even called himself a born-again Christian. Hmm. And, you know, you know, in most churches, when the kids are in Sunday school and they, you know, graduate from one level to another, sometimes they give them a little gift. Uh, and oftentimes to the Greeks, it's something cultural, right? But this guy actually gave us a copy of Mere Christianity and another hmm. year, a copy of, of Screwtape Letters. Hmm. And I remember re re reading those very young, I also remember reading the uh, Chronicles of Narnia when I was young, but I don't think I was fully aware of the whole Christian framework. It wasn't until mm -hmm. I read it again. So I read C.S. Lewis early, and it was really interesting because many years later, after I'd really uh, you know, accepted Christ and grown and reread those books, I realized how much my thinking had been influenced, mm -hmm. not just by the specific thing Lewis said, but the way he thinks. Mm -hmm. uh, is it just really influenced me. And so I've always loved Lewis. But remember, I graduated uh, undergrad in 86 and grad in 91. Nobody was giving classes in C.S. Lewis. So mm -hmm. I never took a class in C.S. Lewis. I didn't do a paper on C.S. Lewis. A lot of that came later. Most of it was reading on my own, really, really enjoying it. Uh, University Christian Fellowship, giving away a lot of books and things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 
about 1999 or so, I was recruited by a company called the Teaching Company. They're also known as the Great Courses. And they bring in professors to mm-hmm. take things. And they're very popular. And it's, it's a secular group, but they were good. They didn't you know, try to censor me. And they brought me out to do a series on what's called literary criticism. It's called Plato to Postmodernism. Uh, and it really went well. They really mm-hmm. liked it. And so they said, we want you to do something else. What else would you like to do? And so I said, well, what about Greek mythology? Already done. What about the Iliad and the Odyssey? Already done. Well, what about the Aeneid? What about Dante? Everything was done. And I said, <laughs> well, I've I've always liked C.S. Lewis. And they're like, do it. So I spent the next summer, the entire summer, this is like a year before 9-11. I spent the entire summer rereading all of the C.S. Lewis, taking cross-references, reading other books, mm-hmm. and put together a 12-lecture series. And that ju- that just immersed me in it. And then after that, it led to being a plenary speaker for a conference where I gave three lectures on Lewis. And then those lectures turned into a full length article that was actually the cover article of Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. And then got that got the attention of Broadman and Holman, who are the Baptist publishers. Mm-hmm. And they hired me to take that essay and turn it into a book. And that was my first book. It's called Lewis Agonistes, Lewis mm-hmm. the Wrestler. And so since then, I've just been teaching Narnia, writing lots of books. And, and also, I make sure... I, I do at least 12 or 15 review essays a year. And so a, a lot of times they'll send me new Lewis books. I'll read them, take notes and write long essays. So mm-hmm. and then again, the speaking and, and it, it's just and think about this, John. I mean, there's almost no Christian out there, especially no evangelical who doesn't see C.S. Lewis as a role model. Mm-hmm. But for me, he's a double role model because he was an English professor. Mm-hmm. Right? So even as a professor, the way I teach, the way I think about trying to be a generalist and all that a lot of it goes back to C.S. Lewis. And so he's just been there right along, just growing with it, learning more and more. And of course, I love it because when you're a Lewis scholar, you get to speak for every different denomination. Mm-hmm. It's everybody loves Lewis. And so it's allowed me to keep, because yeah, I'm a Baptist, but I'm really non-denominational and focused mm-hmm. uh, in getting out there. So, it, so it's been it's been a lifelong yeah. thing, really, starting about age 10, maybe. Yeah, well, I can resonate. That resonates a lot with me in terms of uh, just finding so much of of what he says to to connect with my faith, to explain it well. He seems to always have the right metaphor or simile to explain something really hard, um, and he can explain in some of the most difficult things. I feel like in such a short space, and I walk away understanding it better. And, and I, that's yeah, one of the things about that, that just. Yeah. Really makes a big impact from mere Christianity in particular. I mean, not only does he say these things right in a way that sticks, but look, a great writer like Augustine, you read Augustine, you love it, and a few months later, you've forgotten. Most yes, of it. but there's something about C.S. Lewis, and if you're getting at it, John, it's the the precision and simple clarity of his metaphors. You don't forget it, even after mm-hmm. reading one time, you keep coming back to it and and it's it's a real gift and mm-hmm. he worked on it because his first christian book is called the pilgrim's regress and it is a great book and it's worth reading but it's much it, it, it's it's not there's not a lot of clarity there it's mm-hmm. much more overworked but as we move along he gets more and more clear and i think part of the reason is okay mere christianity began its life as broadcast talks as rate speeches he gave over the bbc radio during the early part of World War II, when the Germans were bombing uh, and uh, mm-hmm. bombing London, and he was asked, and remember, every one of his speeches had to be about twenty minutes. They had to be mm-hmm. simple enough to be understood, and I think that made him a better writer. Just as I think my writings improved mm-hmm. when I started writing blog pieces, because it forced me 
to do something in 500 words to make it clear and simple. And so I, I feel that I too mm-hmm. have become more and more clear. I, w- I was looking at an old essay just like somebody wants me to re- redo something I did 20 years ago. And every other sentence has a parenthesis in it. It's like, oh my God, I was much too close <laughs> to graduate school with all these ridiculous parentheses everywhere. So, you know, we, we all grow and learn, I hope. Yeah. Hopefully get more clear. Not all professors do that. Some get less, clear, <laughs> but it's better if you get more yeah. clear as Lewis did. I think that 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 kept his feet kind of one one foot in the so to speak what we say the real world but one foot in his in his book his world of books and other things because I see a lot of academics who they get so caught up in jargon and uh, this whole scaffolding of of academia that it sometimes seems like that doesn't even ever have any real connection to reality they have no way to explain that to somebody who hasn't you know, read all the other books and yeah. been a part of all the other academic conversation. And, and Lewis said to other academics, if you can't take what you've written in an academic essay and put it in layman terms, then you probably don't understand what you've written either. <laughs> and I think there's some truth yeah. to that. Can you put it? And, you know, that's why I love working with students and things like that. You've got to keep supple, keep in there with, quote, real people speaking real. Uh, William Wordsworth called it the language really spoken by men. Mm-hmm. and you convey it in those kind of words that shows that you really do understand it uh and again i mean we, we have had an unbelievable renaissance in apologetics over the last 20 years and so i get to speak to churches too where mm-hmm. for many people it's the first time they heard the word apologetics mm-hmm. but if you do it in the lewis way if you put it in the layman terms if you explain it with the right kinds of metaphors and connections to real life you see the you know the, the light in their eyes are like okay wow Christianity really does make sense. Mm-hmm. It's not just blind faith. It's rational. It's coherent. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It answers all the questions. And uh, like I said, we're at, and of course, as you where I teach, we've got one of the best mm-hmm. uh, apologetics programs in the country. Us yep. and Biola, probably the best two in the whole country. Yep, amazing. I, uh, you know, I think about this with Lewis because I, I, I think that w- even though you're you're 100 right that we're seeing this amazing kind of renaissance of Christian apologetics in in the past even 10 years, yeah. I also think that there's something that, that's missing or that you know I look to C.S. Lewis and I see of course lots of great logical rigor, you know, a great thinker, but what I think we're missing today is a component he had, which is the skill of rhetoric oh, and yeah. not just this uh, ability to trick people and to, with right. smooth words, but more of this ability to speak with eloquence and to use the the eloquence of language and just really the cadence and the, the structure of language itself to be appealing. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're heading there at, at a classical Christian school that follows the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric. And rhetoric is not just persuading people per se, but it is speaking. It's, it's the ability to express what you believe and put it together, synthesize it, explain it to people. And I'll tell you, I, I love American apologists, but American apologists, um, Josh McDowell, mm-hmm. Chuck Colson, uh, Lee Strobel, William Lane Craig, these are all brilliant people, but they tend to be very left brain thinkers, mm-hmm. you understand? very mm-hmm. rational and logical. And that's really good. But Lewis is unique in bringing this incredible imaginative side and yoking it, marrying it, reason and imagination together, mm-hmm. which is what allows it to stick, what makes it real. He tells stories. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and you know, in, in that sense, he's more like Plato than Aristotle. Right? Aristotle yeah. is brilliant, but sometimes it's a little bit dry. 
but but Plato and of course Lewis was very much a Platonic Christian. Um, he he uh, you know the, the 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 way of telling a dialogue, telling a story. Yeah. You know when you read Plato's dialogues, sometimes the framing story is as interesting as the dialogue, because mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. it's working in all these different yeah. layers. Uh, and Lewis again, he, he is the Plato of our day in many ways. Yeah, I wrote a book called From Plato to Christ, and I end with C.S. Lewis because well, he's one of the great. I was places. I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to say, and your your because this is your your latest book, I think, yeah. Plato to Christ, at least the latest one in print. I'm sure you probably yeah. have one on the way to <laughs> presses, but um, he the last chapter is about Lewis as a Christian Platonist. Could you unpack that? Some people might think that's a contradiction, know, or right. that that's you know un, un, not not a good thing. What tell us? What do you mean by him being a, a Platonic Christian? The most important thing, and see, one of the reasons I wrote that book is that okay, it used to be if you were talking to a more liberal Christian from the mainline denomination, whenever they saw something in Christianity or the Bible they didn't like not for Christian reasons, but for modern secular liberal reasons, they would say, well, that's St. Paul. <laughs> they mm-hmm. would blame everything on mm-hmm. Paul. I only listen to the words in red. They kind of forget that Jesus talks more about hell and devils and damnation. Mm-hmm. And they, <laughs> Paul only talks about grace. Jesus talks more about judgment. But anyway, yeah. forget about that. But what do you do with so-called evangelicals and neo-Orthodox people? When they don't like something, they can't blame it on Paul. They can't get, so they blame it on Plato. Oh, that's Plato. And one of the things they don't like about Plato is Plato understands the importance of hierarchy. There are absolute truths of goodness, truth, and beauty. There are levels. There are things that are closer. And as American evangelicals, we very easily slip into what I would call the heresy of egalitarianism, making everything the same, flattening everything out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand that we're Americans, right? But that's really not what all men are created equal means. It's more mm-hmm. about liberty than it is about equity. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 anyway, people are nervous. But Plato understood that there is such a thing as truth with a capital T, goodness with a capital G, beauty with a capital B, justice with a capital J. And now for Plato, he puts them up in the in the, in the air in the forms. Uh, Augustine, who was a Platonist, he took the forms and put them in the mind of God. Mm-hmm. And, and Lewis would agree with that. So there, when he when, okay, the last battle is the ending of the Chronicles of Narnia, and they get to Aslan's country. And up there, heaven, they realize Narnia is still there, but it's the perfect Narnia, the Narnia that is the form or the original of which this Narnia is, is almost a shadow, living in the Shadowlands. And as the professor Diggory sees that, he says, it's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. What do they teach them these days? Mm-hmm, so it mm-hmm. is that, the other important thing about Plato is the whole emphasis on spiritual growth. You know, for Plato, Plato loves threes. He, he would have enjoyed the Trinity, <laughs> right? He loves threes. So in our soul, we have the rational part that's linked to the head, the reason that links us to the angels, if you will. There is the appetitive part, as in the word appetite, the mm-hmm. I want. That's the belly that links us down to the beast. But then there's the middle part that Plato and Lewis con- con- links to the chest, the spirited part mm-hmm. that mediates between the two. Just like when uh, Frodo is at Amonsul and he's put the ring on after Boromir has attacked him. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he sees the eye way over there and he feels a fight. He's basically the sound of the voice of Sauron telling him to despair, come to me. I, and then he hears, we find out later, it's the voice of Gandalf. But then suddenly, John, you might remember out of nowhere, a third voice rises up. It's not 
the dark one or the light one. It's Frodo himself. Mm -hmm. It is the spirited part that will speak and speak up and choose. Now, Lewis doesn't believe in works righteousness. Salvation is by grace. But he does put a lot of emphasis on spiritual growth and moving closer and closer to the ideal, to that which is good and true and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that comes up in so much of Lewis's work. The other thing in Lewis's work, and, and I borrow from this a lot, is that the problem with sin is not just that it is rebellion and disobedience and depravity. Sin quite literally dehumanizes us. Mm -hmm. It takes us away. And, and Plato understood that without knowing Christianity, not even knowing the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. He understands the nature of the spiritual journey, moving up until you achieve what he called the beatific vision, which means the blessed vision in Greek. And that was picked up by the medieval Christians. Mm -hmm. The difference is that whereas Plato would be uh, meditating on the forms, on the good, which are finally abstract and impersonal, the Christian, we will be mediating upon the triune God. And mm -hmm. again, so, so Lewis takes Plato and he brings them up to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Because look, Plato was wrong. Our world is not merely a shadow, but compared to the thundering reality and even concreteness of heaven, it's like we're living in the Shadowlands, which is the, the name of the mm -hmm. last chapter yeah. is Farewell to Shadowlands at the end of, uh, of, of, of the last battle as they're moving farther and farther. Uh, so Lewis is, is challenging us to mm -hmm. keep moving forward and to understand. And look, the book of Hebrews says, that the, the you know the the the, temp, the tabernacle the temple on earth is in a sense a shadow of the throne room of God, so that sounds and and I don't think the author of Hebrews is quoting Plato, he's speaking out of the the Jewish tradition, it's just that Plato got something right. Let's just mm -hmm. put it that way, right? Uh, and and Lewis understood that and was working within that tradition. And you know we'll talk a little bit about more yeah. about the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, you know, had a strong Platonic element to it. And Lewis was an apologist of the Middle Ages, even yeah. as he's an apologist of Christianity. Yeah, and and uh, that that's I was wanting to segue into kind of you know C.S. Lewis's uh, medieval mind. You know, I've got with me the this book, book. the discarded image, which oh, yes, um, is that. often. Wait, uh, wait, by the way, that's a great book. But whoever came up with that cover art should be shot. <laughs> These leather I mean, gloves. What, I don't know what, what that's about. Have you figured out what that has to do at all? With with I even mean, who came up with that horrible cover, but that's a great book, yeah. uh, and you should all get it. Could be maybe they had a bet. They said it if we put out a book by C.S. Lewis, I can put anything on the cover ah! and it'll sell. <laughs> that's good. That, that may be true. <laughs> um, but tell, can you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about the discarded image? What 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 would they find if they picked up this book? Okay, it, now it is a little bit technical at parts. But basically, and now what what it is, it, it's it's a little bit choppy because it was put together right after Lewis died based on his lectures that he gave mm -hmm. on the medieval cosmological model. How's that for a mouthful? Mm -hmm. That is, in other words, how did the medievals view the cosmos? And they pretty much viewed the cosmos the same way the higher pagans did. The higher pagans would be Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, uh, uh, Ptolemy, uh, the, uh, Euclid. You know, th mm -hmm. Those were sort of the higher pagans. And that vision of the cosmos continues. And I would argue it really even continues to the Enlightenment. Because even though in the Renaissance, 
we put the sun at the center rather than the earth at the center, we are still very much living mm -hmm. in an ordered, meaningful medieval cosmos until we get to Newton and the Enlightenment, and now we're in a more clockwork universe, yeah. right? Um, but 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 anyway, so he lays out for us the way they viewed the universe, and the best way to start is for for the medieval, the universe was their home. For us, it's just our house. Mm -hmm. It's just the place where we live. It's just dead, right? But for them, it was their their house. And the best way to start is the word cosmos. It's a Greek word because every word is Greek. And <laughs> uh, can you think of another word uh, in our language that starts with C-O-S-M that would seemingly have nothing whatsoever to do with the cosmos? Cosmetics. Yeah, cosmetics. So what? It's the same root because the word C-O-S-M, that root means ornament, right? Mm -hmm. Ornament. And in the same way that cosmetics is something you put on your face, ornament, the cosmos is the ornament of God. It mm. shows forth the beauty and balance and harmony of God. And that's just wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. And all the planets are spinning in perfect circles. Now, later on, was it was it Kepler? Was it Taiki Brahe? It was a Brahe who said that it was Brahe, right? That said they were actually elliptical. Uh, it, it, it was Kepler who got the ellipses, but Brahe was was kind of the first to start getting away from the geocentric, I thought. Oh, that's what it was. It was moving away. That's right. So it was Kepler uh, because they still couldn't figure it out. Uh, yeah. But they loved the idea of the perfect circle. I mean, Dante's Divine Comedy, his vision of God is three perfect circles, one inside the other. And yeah. all. Uh, but as they spun, so all of the uh, uh, all the different, they, they, they were the spheres or they were the planets, all of them spun and they were all fixed in crystalline. And as they spun, they sort of vibrated and hummed and mm -hmm. sang and all together, the, they produce what they called the music of the spheres. Mm -hmm. That is the song that the universe sings, right? Yeah. Beautiful idea. Now, what sets all of them in motion? They're all set in motion by the primum mobile, which means the first mover. It's all the way out there. The biggest one, it's moving super fast. What makes it move? It moves out of love for God. Mm -hmm. And in its love for God, it moves and it kicks off all the other spheres that are moving in the opposite direction, but all in perfect concentric mm -hmm. spheres. And again, the universe is meaningful and it sheds an influence on us mm -hmm. now don't confuse this with astrology that says the stars control us they don't control us but they do influence and they also show forth i mean god showed forth the birth of his son by a star of bethlehem and many people myself included would say it's probably not a star like a supernova certainly wasn't a comet because that's always bad news it's probably some kind of a conjunction of the planets mm -hmm. and the constellations. Because the whole point of the story is nobody seems to recognize that there's something going on in the skies except the people that study the stars. Right? Mm -hmm. If it was some supernova, everybody would have seen it. But that doesn't seem to be the story. So God, and of course, when, when Jesus was crucified, there was an eclipse, right? And there was an mm -hmm. earthquake. I mean, God shows forth himself and the universe is meaningful. So the word uh, moon in Spanish is Luna, right? Very close to the Italian, uh, the Latin. And of course, if you're under the moon, the influence of the moon causes <laughs> lunacy, right? <laughs> and he, he works it all out. It's kind of beautiful. So it, it not only has an impact on us, it also has an impact on the earth. 
-hmm. So the influence, which is where we get the word influenza, which is where we get the word flu, because mm -hmm. it's on the air, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in the earth, the moon produces, well, what what famous monster is controlled by the moon? Um, the, I mean, yeah, werewolf? Say, the werewolf, right? Okay. And how do you kill a werewolf? Uh, what silver. Kind of bullet? silver bullet, right? Yeah. So the moon produces silver, right? So the moon sort of oh. draws silver out of the earth, oh. even as it draws lunacy out of us. It makes us fickle. Right? Yeah. Uh, another example would be now. Here's an easy one: mercury. Can you mm. guess what metal mercury brings? Uh, mercury. <laughs> that was a trigger. Uh, also known as quicksilver or mercury. Mercury makes you mercurial. Mercurial means you're running all. Mercury is the origin of the word for merchant. People on merchant ships mm. are always running around because mercury is the messenger of the gods, yeah. right? Uh, and you work all the all the way on up, right? The sun produces gold, and it mm -hmm. makes men wise and generous, right? Uh, and and uh, uh, the the last one, Jupiter. Uh, is actually a bad one because it produces lead. I'm sorry, uh, Saturn produces lead and makes mm -hmm. you Saturnine, which is like melancholy. Yes. Uh, yes. The idea is that there is a a dialogue, right? And see, it, it's really a shame, John, because nowadays we think all of that's new age stuff. Mm -hmm. but that was part of the church until the Enlightenment came along and kind of dropped the hammer or dropped the, the guillotine and said, reason over here, imagination over here. They yeah. have nothing in between. They live in a, in, a, in a universe that was made. And Lewis also reminds us of, so I love this. He says, we laugh at the medievals because they speak of influence, right? Acting as if the, uh, as if the, the universe were, were migrating birds or something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. But what do we speak of? We speak of the laws of nature. John, that's just as much as a metaphor, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. a rock is much more like a migrating bird than it is like a citizen, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's you're basically saying a rock has to follow the laws of the polis and fall. Yeah. So we 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 really can't get out of metaphorical languages. Yeah. Now Lewis is not saying we go back to it. We know there are certain things that are factually untrue, but as a metaphor for interacting with the world and reality, there's something beautiful that we have lost and mm -hmm. we forget. And we're now a little bit of, is it coming back with those great people that do intelligent design that we can see mm -hmm. the design of the designer, but let's not make that only mathematical. We mm -hmm. also see the personhood of God, mm -hmm. or we might better the trans personality of God. We can see in the universe. In other words, the universe is beautiful. It's not just mathematically logical. It is beautiful because mm -hmm. god's beauty is shown forth in that world and so th those are some yeah. of the ways that lewis sort of unpacks that model so we can not only understand the details of it but we can understand the impact that it had upon people and you're probably familiar that the great michael ward wrote a book mm -hmm. called planet narnia yes where he linked the seven chronicles of narnia to the seven medieval yes. planets. Now, it's going to confuse people what those seven medieval planets are. The moon was considered a planet, mm -hmm. but the earth wasn't, but the sun was. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> now, the reason is because planete in Greek means a wanderer, something that moves. Mm -hmm. And they not only believed that the earth was at the center of the earth, they believed that it did move, that the earth mm -hmm. was still. And 
don't you find it hard to believe the earth is spinning? <laughs> remember, the earth is not just spinning on its axis. It's moving through the sky. Mm-hmm. I find that hard to believe. I still I still think people in China are li- are walking upside down. I just can't find, <laughs> find it very hard to believe. It's hard to conceive of it, right? But again, they all knew that the earth was round. They just did not know that it was the center. And the reason they thought the earth was at the center is because they were good scientists and they followed what their eyes showed them. Mm-hmm. It was only once we had superior telescopes that Galileo was able to make more accurate measurements. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but everything that Galileo said was said a generation earlier by who? Who's the one who really started? Copernicus. Copernicus. Nothing bad happened to him. Okay, now, one reason is that between Copernicus and Galileo, we have this thing called the Reformation and the Mm Counter-Reformation, and the Catholics are understandably a little bit touchy. Okay, Mm -hmm. But there's another reason. When he wrote his, uh, was it? Principia, when when he when when Copernicus wrote his book about that, he all he said was, you know what, I think if we try a heliocentric or sun-centered model, it will answer things better than a geocentric or earth-centered. Mm-hmm. He just said, let's try another paradigm. And by the way, there were people in the ancient world who suggested a heliocentric, uh, like Pythagoras, but they said no because it didn't answer as much. And the word for that is saving the appearances Mm -hmm. you want Mm -hmm. a model that will explain as much as it can of what we see Mm -hmm. right and by the way even the great galileo got something wrong he thought the tides were caused by the rotation of the earth Mm. so he was wrong about that Mm -hmm. even he couldn't conceive of a a rock a quarter of a million miles away quarter Mm -hmm. of a billion miles away i guess uh no quarter of a million miles away that it could cause the tides right so he, he got things wrong as well but what was different with galileo galileo didn't say uh, didn't say, let's try a new model. Galileo said, I've looked through my telescope and this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. In a way, he was beginning the separation of the cosmos from those of us who perceive the mm-hmm. cosmos. We're moving into a modern world that, and, and again, a lot of times the church goes along with that because we're so afraid of being called new agers or something mm-hmm. like that, that we've lost a sense of glory and wonder and awe and you know there was a great book written called one second the privileged planet Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it it makes the argument that others have made that have you ever heard we live in the goldilocks zone Mm -hmm. right that 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 everything has to be exactly perfect to allow human life it's called the anthropic principle and it's amazing that the earth is exactly everything all of the uh forces are you know within just a fraction okay mm-hmm. but they added something else to that they call it the privileged planet because we are not only in the one place in the universe where life is possible we're in the one place in the universe that allows us to explore our universe mm-hmm. because of the nature of our atmosphere mm-hmm. because of where we are in a spiral arm of the galaxy we can actually investigate god god obviously wants us to investigate because he made it possible and you probably know this john it was only fairly recently during i think it was during a solar eclipse that they were able to fully prove some of einstein's theories mm-hmm. because I, I can't tell you how amazing it is that the shape and distance of our moon and sun allows for a complete eclipse that mm-hmm. that is something that you know astronomical if you're trying and by the way the new you know those people that made independence day the mm-hmm. movies keep getting bigger and stupider. They 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 made the day after. They made what was the other one that was so dumb? Uh, 
Oh, 20 to 2012 or 20, yeah. 2012. Yeah. Their latest one is called, I think it's called Moonfall. <laughs> it's so funny because somebody says, when you look at the moon and the sun and the distance, it's impossible that it could be a coincidence. So does that mean there's a God? No, it means aliens yes. built the moon. I don't, <laughs> that is just, that, that's a better explanation than God. And by the way, it turns out that we're the aliens that made the moon. It's, yeah. it's really, it, 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 it gets, it gets to the extreme of stupidity. It's unbelievable, um, but it's still fun. It, it's but, funny because I feel like our universe is too flat. It like the that the the modern world, as you know, as the spirit of our age has it, is very thin and narrow and has a very small view of the world. It does. If we were to look at the medieval world, I actually feel like it's a bigger universe. It's a richer universe. Like we've actually over time impoverished our view of the world. We haven't made it richer. I would definitely agree. I mean, they, they again they lived in a world that was everything had meaning. Okay. They lived in a world of correspondences. Everything corresponded both horizontally and vertically. Mm -hmm. I'll just give you a quick example. I, 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 if I had a board, I'd draw it out. But most people are aware of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And a lot of people have heard of the four humors. Those mm -hmm. are the four bodily fluids of, of black bile, white bile, blood, and phlegm. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't realize that in the full medieval model, those groups of four are completely related. So earth, earth is uh, earth is dry and hard. And so is black bile. Mm -hmm. right? Water is cold and wet, just like phlegm. Air, especially in Houston, is <laughs> hot and wet, just like blood. And uh, and and uh, fire is hot and dry, just like the white bile. So mm. you see how they're all mm -hmm. related all across. They believe that e even the constellation, you, you can see these beautiful old medieval pictures where they'll show a body, either of a man or a woman, and then all along their body are the constellations because everything corresponds with mm -hmm. something else as above, so below. And the belief was that man is the that man is a microcosm. In other mm -hmm. words, in us, in miniature is sort of the whole universe. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful image of it. And one, and you know, that's why they believe, okay, a lot of people today, John, are familiar with the difference between Western medicine and Eastern medicine. Eastern medicine from China and India would be things like acupuncture and chiropractic and herbal medicine, all of that sort of stuff. And we like to think that the difference is West versus East, but it really isn't. If you go back before the Enlightenment, we also, the Westerners, Europe, well, Europe back then, had a holistic view of health mm -hmm. as a kind of balance. Now, the East China, they try to balance your chi. They try to balance the energy. But the medievals try to balance the fluids. Now, unfortunately, we've lost this beautiful uh, legacy because all anybody ever knows is about bleeding people. <laughs> and we know a few people, maybe even George Washington, who may have died because they bled him too much, right? And and that's just like a, a ridiculous. Uh, 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 right. It, it's what we're losing is the idea of you don't cut things up, you balance them properly. And Lewis works out a lot of that stuff for us as well. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And by the way, if you really read carefully, it's not so much the fluids you're balancing as spirits in the fluid. Mm -hmm. So it's not that different from chi. There's a kind of energy 
or spiritual force that we're trying to align properly. Yeah. Uh, and and that I, I think that's a much better view of health as balance than mm. other things. And I think in the medieval mm. world, uh, what you find is with balance, another word they use a lot is harmony. Harmony. Good. There's harmony, not just in music, but in, you know, things are harmonious in harmonious relations to one another. Um, harmony of one's own soul. Um, I think I think it was Kepler who wrote a book called like the harmony of the spheres wow. or the harmony harmony. And uh, it just once again illustrates this idea that everything was ordered. It had a purpose. And once again, it was this much richer and deeper view of all reality. I think in our modern world, we're just constantly supposed to be surprised that everything works out, that it's just oh, dumb luck yeah. and chance that everything, you know, everything works and we're still alive. But, yeah. you know, I wonder if part of the anxiety that our culture feels is just this sense that, you know, everything is delicately balanced on a knife for no good reason. Yeah, at any moment, it could all just come undone. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, what we've lost is wonder. We've lost a sense of awe. We've mm -hmm. lost thanksgiving all of these things. And that's why I really believe that in a good classical Christian schools like yours there, yeah. music and art are taken even more seriously than mm -hmm. they are in a regular public school. Not just because we think they're important as part of the Western, you know, great books of the way, but because they, and it goes back to Plato too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why Plato is very careful about what music children yeah. listen to because music affects us in deep ways. Mm -hmm. That's why I was always upset when I was younger and they were finally attacking the rap music the only thing they ever attacked in the rap music were the four-letter words and the violence and stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about the problem with the music itself. Yeah. Like that, that ugly sounds can lead to a disharmonious society. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's problematic, right? Yeah. And it's not that doesn't mean that a little bit of disharmony is always bad. Mm -hmm. Tchaikovsky's always using uh, you know, a little bit of concordance, but it mm -hmm. always resolves itself into a greater kind of beauty mm -hmm. Bach all the time man he gets going on that uh organ and it sometimes almost gets ugly and cacophonous <laughs> and then there's a greater beauty as it resolves itself right yeah. um and so it, it is important like i said uh you know um i'm actually writing a book on education right now that's my new book uh and and again what's important is the 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 knowledge of teaching not only the legacy but teaching students to have a sense of gratitude and awe mm -hmm. and wonder in the face of it and in the face of the world. So we go, it's not the Darwinians who teach the awe of nature. It's us. Mm -hmm. God's presence is written throughout nature. Let's go out and see the, the wonders and glories of that design. We are the ones, you know, and first of all, if, if the, if the pure Darwinians are true and there is no soul, then we can't even see nature because if we're part of nature, we can't see it. I don't think, a fish realizes that the world is wet or dry. Mm -hmm. Only human beings, because we're made in the image of God, because we have a soul, can we stand outside of ourselves mm -hmm. and study nature. And Lewis says in a book he wrote called Miracles that we're the only ones that can really see or even enjoy nature mm -hmm. because we can study her from the outside and see all of that design. Well, I really could keep talking for much longer, oh, but... Okay. I think we we probably should wrap it here um, for uh, unfortunately, the world, I have meetings and other things, which, you know, just a little plea to my families. If we have less meetings, I could have better. Yay, podcasts. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I, one of the things I always got upset with is, you know, I, I like that churches have activities. But when a church has an activity at like six o'clock, it means you're going to end up having to take your kids to McDonald's. And I always mm -hmm. refuse. It's like, all right, we're going to come late. 
I'm not going to, you know, mess up my family dinner. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have to think about these things sometimes, <laughs> uh, and 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 you know, put the family first. You know, yeah. and uh, of course, remember uh, Nancy Pierce is writing a new book on, on masculinity. That that in the older days when we all lived on farms, we were home. We were always mm-hmm. together. We were working together. Mm-hmm. There's something unnatural about, you know, e- even in the, the day of the nuclear family where the wife is, it's un- unnatural for the father to be gone the whole day mm-hmm. right? or sometimes the whole week, which is even worse. Right. Yep. And uh, so, uh, yes, we, we want to put that plea out there. And we also know nobody has attention spans anymore. So yeah, you probably okay. keep them too long. <laughs> People will shut it off. All right. These two have said enough. I'm moving on. Yeah. What's on Netflix? <laughs> you know. Well, thank thank you for your generous hey, great uh, talking, yeah. time and, Look, looking forward to keeping up with you. Looking forward to that next book. That sounds great. Yeah, thank you. We'll get, get out there again one of these days. All right. Great. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening today. Uh, as we wrap up, I just want to remind everybody about our All Pro Dads meeting on March the 3rd, Friday morning that we have uh, the opening of, of our fall registration for the next school year opens up here on March the 6th. That's for everybody. So if you're not registered with KPA, uh, you might lose your spot. So don't let that happen. And then we have uh, the end of our third term uh, takes place on Friday, March 10th. Uh, spring break commences at the end of our school day. And then we just have one fourth of the school year yet. Uh, to, to go through. So uh, all kinds of great things are happening. Uh, thank you for listening. Please share this podcast to those who would find it interesting. And I hope you tune in next time.